Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1. Let me pray for our time in the Word. Lord, as always, in the Christmas season, our greatest desire is that you would be lifted up in the hearts of your people, that you would be lifted up in the eyes of the world. Help us to understand your word, what you have revealed to us here in Luke chapter 2, and help us to worship rightly. In your name we ask these things. Amen. Both Matthew and Luke tell of Jesus' birth and its circumstances from two different perspectives, and both include some different details. Luke's telling of Jesus' birth is remarkably simple and unadorned. There is not a lot of frill and tinsel in Luke's telling of Jesus' birth. And yet the story is filled with wonder. The story is filled with awe and expectation. We find the word wondered in verse 18, and it really captures the tone of the story. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. It is a word that describes amazement, baffled astonishment, something exciting, something marvelous. What we need is awe and just a little imagination. I'm convinced that God intends for us to encounter him through his word in such a way that we marvel, that we bow our knees and we worship. Jesus' birth is marvelous. God wants our hearts and our imaginations to be enraptured with him and bound to him. So wonder at these events. Marvel at these events. Today I want you to marvel over the Savior's royal birth, the Savior's heavenly heralds, and the Savior's earthly witnesses, so that you will worship with awe, that you will worship with wonder. So we begin then in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, with the Savior's royal birth. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now what makes Jesus' royal birth marvelous? Well, first of all, there is an unstoppable plan at work here, God's unstoppable plan. Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian, issues a decree for all inhabitants of the Roman Empire, 
That's what is meant here by in all the world. And that decree is that everyone is to be registered for taxation purposes. And the imperial policy requires the Jewish population to register by family name in their ancestral cities, in his own town. That's what that phrase means. That means that everybody was traveling at this time. Everybody was on the road. Everybody was moving. So all the regions of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and all the rest are in a state of upheaval as people migrate all over Palestine, relocating, at least temporarily, to the city of their heritage. You can imagine roads choked with traffic, with donkey collisions, okay, causing detours through Samaria, camel parking problems, roadside vendors trying to make a buck, crowded inns, people turning their homes and their stables into VRBOs for a couple of months. Luke is especially mindful of the historical data surrounding Jesus' birth for two reasons. First of all, it is crucial to Luke to accurately record with concrete, historically real arrival of the Messiah. The Savior enters the world, the hard, cold reality of human history. It is a verifiable, undeniable historical event that the human race has to deal with, has to come to grips with. Secondly, Luke wants us to see in these historical records that behind the greatest power on earth is even the greater power of God. He wants us to see that even the might of Rome is subject to the authority of heaven. That Caesar is an instrument in the sovereign hand of God by which he moves the gears of world events to bring about his salvation. God reorders and reroutes every inhabitant of the Roman Empire to move one family from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea. Caesar, in ordering this census, may be exerting his greatness before the eyes of humanity, but God is exerting his greatness beyond all human comprehension, such as the unfathomable way and marvelous way that God works. No less marvelous, then, is Jesus' kingly heritage. So there's an unstoppable plan, God's unstoppable plan. There's also Jesus' kingly heritage. He is David's descendant. It's hard to miss Luke's emphasis on the city of David, the house and lineage of David. The Messiah had to be the son or the descendant of the David, the king of Israel. Let me give you a couple of prophecies 
from the Old Testament scriptures that pointed forward to this necessity. The first one here is found in the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now let me just pause right here for a second. Interesting thing about this prophecy is that in the Gospel of Matthew, the wise men from the east who come seeking the king of the Jews, they come to Herod, who is king, who now is jealous and is really seeking to murder the baby, but he wants to find where this baby is supposed to be. So hearing this from these travelers, these foreigners, he goes to the, the priests and the religious leaders of Israel, and he asks them about the Messiah. He doesn't know. He's somewhat theologically obtuse. So he goes to the theologians of his day, and he says, where is the baby, the Messiah, the future king of the Jews, supposed to be born? They point to this verse. They even knew. They understood. This isn't something we just understand looking back. They understood that the Messiah, the promised king, was going to be born in Bethlehem. They already knew that. Isaiah, the prophet, says in Isaiah 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Someone had to come from Jesse. That meant they came from David. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the apostle Paul establishes his apostleship, the authority of the gospel on Jesus' lineage from David. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus had to be born as a man, a human being, and the son of God had to be born as a human being descended of David. Jesus fulfills this requirement. Joseph's need... To venture to Bethlehem shows his direct lineage from David. So here is the promised one, the Savior, with all of the credentials, which makes his birth all the more marvelous because of his humble arrival. Jesus has a kingly heritage, and Jesus arrives humbly. So set in contrast then with this royal lineage is the fact that he is wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, the inn here might be an inn as we think of an inn, like a hotel of sorts. It also might have just been some sort of public shelter, like a hostel. If you've ever traveled, especially in Europe, there are hostels, and you can just kind of go in and pay by the night, and all you get is a cot in the corner. So it might have been that kind of a, a place. But Mary and Joseph are moved to the stable, which may have been a cave. It was a place where the livestock, the animals were kept. 
And it may be that this phrase, no place for them in the inn, is because it's so crowded. That could be. It also could be because Mary goes into labor. Now, there's a lot of cultural differences between their culture and our culture, but not that many. To be in a crowded inn or hostile situation, that's H-O-S-T-E-L, hostile, not hostility, but to be in that kind of a, a, a situation and then go into labor, why don't you go out into the stable? She probably would want that kind of privacy. So in any case, they are moved to the stable. This is almost not believable. The Messiah? The Savior? Born in a stable or a cave where the animals are kept and tucked into a feed trough? But isn't this the heart of God? Isn't God telling us something? Mary's child is sent into the world to save the low, the broken, the outcast, the sinner. He would eat with tax collectors. He would eat with prostitutes. He would eat with sinners. And isn't this the pleasure of God to confound the pride of men, to do the opposite of what we, in all of our self-importance, in all of our self-proclaimed power, in all of our wealth and independence as the human race, what we would expect and what we would demand of someone who claimed to be a king God takes everything and turns it on its head. Jesus did not enter the world on man's terms or according to man's expectations. And it hints at something that will only become clear as Jesus grows from a baby to a child to a young man and then to a mature man. It's something that will become clear as Jesus begins to teach and to reveal himself and to speak of the kingdom. And that is that this son of David did not come to establish a political kingdom. Not yet. He did not come to establish a throne that would shatter Rome and restore Israel to national freedom and power. This child is the fulfillment of all the promises to David, and yet somehow at this time, he is no competitor with Caesar. He's no competitor with the governor Quirinius or even Herod. It's almost as though God is saying, those kingdoms are paltry. I'll deal with them someday. Because humanity's greatest need is not a proper government. Humanity's greatest need is the condition of the heart. Humanity's greatest need is that the sinful condition of the heart be dealt with, that sins be forgiven. So this king is born in a stable, 
and he's laid in a feeding trough. His royal birth is marvelous. Secondly, we should also marvel at the Savior's heavenly heralds. The Savior's heavenly heralds. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among those with whom he is pleased. We should marvel at the Savior's heavenly heralds. What makes them marvelous? Well, look at the angel's appearance. The glory of the Lord shone around them. This was what was known in the Old Testament scriptures as the Shekinah, the glory of God. This is God's very presence that is being mediated or communicated through the angel. So you know, when we see those traditional pictures or whether it's a cartoon, an animated feature, whatever it is, where the shepherds are out there and there's kind of this beam of light coming out, it's not so far from the truth. There was this emanating glory. God is interacting with his creation By the way, there's no other event in the Bible with so much angelic activity than Jesus' birth. The only exception would be at the end of time when God judges the world. And so you have in the Gospels at Jesus' birth and then in the book of Revelation as God judges the world, these very concentrated angelic Uh, missions and activities. And it's almost paradoxical here in contrast with the humble setting and the common people is this divine, glorious appearance. And they cause fear and wonder. The shepherds are afraid. They are awed. And this is the way it always was when angels showed up. You'll find it earlier in the Gospel of Luke when the angel comes to Mary and when he comes to John the Baptist's father. It's, they are afraid. The glory is fearful. It's marvelous, amazing. So his appearance is marvelous, and so is the news. So is the declaration, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. This word good news is the word gospel. It's the word that would come to summarize all of the teaching about Jesus and the body of truth, about his identity and the cross and his resurrection. All of those things would be called the gospel, that which was proclaimed by the apostles. But at this point, it's just talking about his birth. This is the gospel or the good news 
And this word great, great joy, usually means big, but it means magnificent, weighty. So this joy then is a weighty, magnificent, deep, abiding joy. It's the kind of joy that gets down in your soul. It's the joy of awe. It's the joy of contemplating something beyond your wildest dreams. Verse 11 tells us that what makes the news so good, what makes the joy so great, is that for unto you is born. And then the angel gives this baby three titles. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Born to you in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. The focus here is really on Savior. He will deliver. He will rescue. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to save. In sending Jesus, born a baby, in Bethlehem, God reveals his power to save us and his resolve to save us. Even the name Jesus means the Lord saves. But save us how? Save us from what? If we need a savior, if we need deliverance, then people are in danger and in need of salvation. From what does Jesus rescue us? Well, listen to this prophecy of Zechariah, which is recorded earlier in the Gospel of Luke. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, who was kind of the forerunner of Jesus. And later in Luke, we would find that John the Baptist begins preaching and, and declaring that the Messiah is about to appear. He's about to come on the scene. But in this prophecy to Zechariah, the Holy Spirit has already promised that Mary's son would bring salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That he would give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Matthew's gospel tells us that an angel reveals to Joseph that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. So mankind, the human race, is held captive by sin, darkness, death. The Bible's assessment of the human race is very different than the human race's assessment of itself. From God's perspective, we need saving. We need rescuing. And it's a salvation we can never accomplish. We can never change the condition of our hearts on our own. Only God can do that. Jesus comes to seek and to save the lost. As 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 puts it, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Moreover, the Savior is Christ. 
in the Old Testament scriptures, Christ is the word Messiah, the same title, or anointed one, meaning that this is the unique one that God has sent to save. For unto you this day is born, given. No one else fulfills the promises that God made to his people. No one else will do what Jesus will do. No one else will say what Jesus will say. No one else will be who Jesus will be. There is no other one who can save. There is no one else who comes in God's name and speaks and acts with God's authority. Only Jesus. And this Savior, this Christ, is Lord. He has the authority to save. And his saving work is tied to his right to rule, which one day he will. One day he will rule over the kingdoms of the earth. This is marvelous, good news of great joy. The promised Christ, the Lord himself, has now come to deliver us from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin. Now notice the angel's reaction. It is also marvelous. So good is this news, so marvelous is this work of God, that the angelic host of heaven is stirred into wonder and praise. At first, there's just a lone messenger, one angel. And if that's not frightening and scary enough, he is suddenly joined by a multitude, it says, a multitude of angels. Humanity may be unaware of who this baby is, but heaven is set into a frenzy. In heaven, there is glory to God, ascribing of praise, acknowledging his glory, lifting him up. There is wonder and marvel even among the angels. On earth, then, God offers peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus' coming is God's provision for peace. I remember we, I was just talking about sin and the condition of the human heart. That makes us God's enemies because God is holy. This is God's offer of peace. He has initiated. God has graciously reached out in the birth of Jesus to initiate a reconciliation, to bring us to himself, to make peace between us, something we could never do. And this is heaven's reaction to what God is doing. The angels themselves marvel over what God has done. The angels are attentive to God's plan and his working out of how he's going to save us through this baby. No other birth can claim such heraldry. Lastly, let's marvel at the Savior's earthly witnesses. Savior's earthly witnesses. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, 
Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So these shepherds are the first witnesses. They are the first witnesses to fulfill God's promises, to witness the fulfillment of his promises. The shepherds were not outcasts. They were skilled laborers, and they were generally well-regarded. That's part of the reason their testimony has some weight. But why shepherds? What makes their witness so marvelous? Well, there is God's selection of them. God chooses to reveal the Savior's birth to some shepherds watching their flocks by night. Now, it might be that there aren't a lot of people up and about in the middle of the night, but it's more than just availability. Certainly, there is a connection to David, isn't there? David was both a king and a shepherd. And he was a shepherd for a long time before he was king. David's promised descendant, the son of David, would also be a king and a shepherd. So by announcing Jesus' birth to some shepherds out in the field, God is making a connection between the shepherd and the king the field, and the throne. But I also think God was sending a message because the people's shepherds were the priests, the religious leaders of their day. What kind of shepherds were they? Unfaithful shepherds. Jesus' greatest enemies his greatest, the greatest hostility that he faced were from the religious leaders, the priests, the Pharisees. In fact, they were the ones who initiated his crucifixion. They were the ones who sought his life. They were the priests. The Old Testament even calls the priests the shepherds of Israel. It is they who should have been watching. It is they who should have been ready for the Savior. It is they who should have understood the fulfillment of the prophecies. It is these shepherds who should have recognized him for who he was. But they didn't. Now, they were waiting in a way. They were looking for a military Messiah to defeat Rome. They had redefined their expectations of who the Messiah, the Savior, would be according to their own agendas. 
which was national freedom, national prominence. And so they were, in a way, waiting for a Messiah, but a military one who would defeat Rome. And so they would never recognize this baby for who he was. So God does not announce the Savior's birth to the people's faithless shepherds, but to faithful shepherds who are out watching their flocks by night. So there is then this selection of the shepherds, and it's a marvelous message that God is sending. There's also the shepherds' faith. They receive a sign from the angel. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And they believe the message. They believe it. In fact, they go with haste. There's an urgency on the shepherd's part. They want to go see what the angel has said. The angel's given them a sign. That means they are to go seek him. And after finding everything as the angel had promised, described it would be, they made known the saying. What's the saying? For unto you this day is born in the city of David, Savior, Christ the Lord. That's the saying. That's the saying concerning this child. They make it known. So I think what has happened here is that they're out watching their flocks by night. The angels appear. They receive the message and the sign. They travel into town in Bethlehem. They find the baby they worship him. They're excited. By this time, it's dawn. By this time, the sun is risen, and people are up and out. They're about. They're starting work. They're opening their shops. They're opening the stables. They're pulling the animals out. They're beginning to fill bags and put their burdens on their camels and their donkeys to travel, to sell things. The market is opening up. And these shepherds who have been up all night watching their flocks and now have come to the manger and worshiped the baby, they start making it known. Guess what? Guess what? We were out in the field last night. Bam, an angel. Can you believe it? And this is what he said. And there were a bunch of angels. And they were all flying around. They were all praising God. They begin, and this is what they said about this baby. I don't know, some back alley over there in a stable. Savior, the Messiah, he's Lord. That's what the angels said. They begin to give testimony of these things. And the people who heard it, verse 18, wondered. They marveled. Now, they didn't understand what it all meant. And I'm sure that some of them were just caught up in the excitement of the moment. But already, already, the very morning of his birth, the eyes of the human race are beginning to turn to him. Already, he is being proclaimed. These aren't apostles. These, aren't even, these shepherds aren't even what we would call Christians. But they had received the revealed truth about the identity of this baby. And they're already making him known. 
But there's another witness, and that's Mary. She too hears the shepherd's testimony. Now, Mary wasn't out in the field, she had just given birth. She doesn't see the angel, she doesn't hear it, but she has been visited by an angel a couple of times. She's already heard certain things about him. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Her wonder, her marveling is not an excitement. It's not a a chattiness. It's not this energetic, filled conversation. What about, what do you think? It's not speculation. No, Mary mulls over. She thinks over these things deeply, and she's trying to put the pieces together. It's like pieces of a puzzle. There were the angel's words to her nine months before. There was her cousin Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist. Her reaction when she went to go visit Elizabeth to tell her that she was with child and John the Baptist as a baby filled with the Holy Spirit leaps in Elizabeth's womb. What about the angel's appearance to her fiancé, Joseph, about the identity of the baby and what he's to be named? And now there are these shepherds invading the privacy of the stable. How would they know? And they come in, and they're like, you're the mom? You're the mom? This, this baby, the angels told us. That's how we know. Angels, sky, big glory, boom. And we had to see it. She hears them as they walk out, starting to say, guess what? Guess what happened last night? So the shepherd's testimony, their praises, and Mary's pondering, these are all right ways to wonder with awe to think on with amazement what the birth of this baby means. This is the wonder of faith, of faith. With the call to marvel, to wonder, is a call to understand who Jesus is. And with the call to understand who Jesus is, is a call to believe in him. And this call to believe in him is a call to worship him rightly. And the call to worship him is a call to make him known, to make known who he is. The scriptures, the Bible, testifies and confirms that this Jesus entered the stream of human history, that he fulfilled all of God's promises and that in him alone is found salvation from sin and from judgment. And you see, the greater your faith in him, the greater your worship. And the greater your worship, the greater your awe, the greater your marveling. Merry Christmas. Lord Jesus, help us to reflect in these days on the wonder of your birth. Not just a sentimental, traditional, fuzzy feeling about how precious it was 
that a baby was born laid in a manger with some cute animals huddled around looking at him. But that you were the king of kings and that you had come to die. You would come to save. You would come to save us from our sins. Not just wrong things that we do, but a condition of the heart that causes us to do wrong things. A condition that we can't change on our own. Lord, help us to think on that, to wonder in that amazement that you reached out, you offered peace, reconciliation to us, to yourself. Lord, we give you praise and glory. Let our songs now be sung with with a greater fervor and a greater awe than they ever have been. In your name we pray.